Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpothanchel. In this segment, Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler will join us. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. We're going to start off discussing COVID-19. The illness has not been felt equally by all groups in Connecticut. Here in the state, Black and Hispanic people have been more likely than white people to be infected and to die with COVID-19. Nationally, the CDC reported last month that Native Americans have been almost four times as likely as white people to be hospitalized with coronavirus and almost two and a half times more likely to die from the illness during the pandemic. Here in the state, the Connecticut Department of Public Health reports infection rates for the Native American population have been very close to that of the white population. So, Chairman Butler, how have members of the the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation fared during the pandemic? Well, uh, let me start off by saying Kuikwas and uh, Matt, and that's a uh, good morning in, in our language, in our Pequot language. And um, thank you for having me on the show. Um, yeah, look, it's been uh, it's been a challenge uh, as the world has gone through. Uh, so has Pequot. Um, I will say uh, up front that we've been we've been when you look at the statistics as you pointed out for Indian country, uh, we we have been uh, spared, I guess, in a sense where we're more on average with the general public because of the resources that we have and where we're at in southeastern Connecticut and having access to some of the best uh, health care um, uh, in, in the country, which we have in New England. Um, and so when you think about when you look at those statistics for Indian country, when you think about those tribes that are that are spread out, you know, in remote locations with limited access to health care uh, to begin with. And so that's where the statistics really creep in. We do have the uh, the genetic disposition to many health issues, uh, just that's over time as in, similar to the minority community. But I will say that um, that from that sense, when I look at my, my my sister tribes out there across the country, we're certainly not complaining at Mashantucket from where we stand. And then again, we, we responded very quickly. Um, I, I, re- I remember I mean, we had a membership meeting at the time when uh, we had our first case, a uh, tribal membership meeting. We meet uh, as a community we meet regularly almost like town uh town hall meetings and uh there was a family member who had uh tested positive this was back in march of uh, of last year and we immediately ended the meeting this is before the rest of the world was was frantic about it we immediately ended the meeting um and went into uh, emergency management mode uh, and from that point on that led to uh, two weeks later where we actually ultimately ended up closing down Foxwoods. And so, um, so we've been very focused and very diligent uh, uh, on this crisis and making sure that community first, and I think that leads us into how we manage the enterprise as well. But, you know, as a community first, uh, health is uh, health and education are are two of our our cornerstones of what we focus on as a community. And so that made this an an extreme priority for us to make sure people were safe. And so, um, so we, we've had uh, about the same number of infections as, as the general public for the most part. Um, and, and that says something that speaks to tying it to the enterprise because many of my family actually work at Foxwoods that that's been open since June one of last year. So it shows you the, 
the incredible protocols we've put in place to keep people safe. If my own family uh, can work there and day in and day out and our infection rates continue to stay relatively low, it speaks volumes to what we're doing as a community and being diligent and keeping everybody safe. Have any tribal members passed away with the illness? Uh, we've we've been fortunate. We've had, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, there's the illness and then there's a the stress related to it of just the times that we're in. And so I think, you know, when you look at the direct impact of COVID, there is one statistic, but I also think there's a lot of stress that that uh, that families and individuals are under over this last year uh, plus. And so that also leads to uh, some mortality. And so we haven't had, uh, we've been blessed, we haven't had a direct um, link to COVID, meaning they, you know, contracted the virus and then went into the hospital and everyone that we've had that has contracted it has uh, fortunately, thank the creator, has has come out um, and, 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 and recovered. Um, so no direct deaths tied to COVID, but we've certainly had an inordinate number of deaths in the last year uh, of, of family members who, um, especially some of our elders, who uh, were healthy going into this. And we believe that the stress uh, has impacted them. Is, is the loss of those elders, I mean, does that in, a, in, a, a, in some way represent sort of a loss of kind of a direct connection to, to some part of, of the, the, the tribal nation's history? Yeah, our history is passed on through our history and our culture and our wisdom is passed on through our elders. And so we, we, um, we, are, we are proud to say that, you know, with the advent of, of gaming and growing our economy, we've been actually uh, been able to uh, in, enhance our, our health care opportunities for our family and in doing so have uh, have, have uh, elongated the lives of our elder community and so you know pre pre uh, economic expansion of mash and you know the average life expectancy for for a pequot or native american in general was around the age of 60 to 65 and so i'm proud to say we have an, we have one elder who's who's 97 years old this year uh and, and many that are o- over 70 and so um, so every time you lose one, it's, it's losing a, a, you know, a, a treasure chest of, of wisdom. Um, and especially going, you know, historically, we, we're, you know, we have oral traditions and a lot of our, uh, our culture and our history and, uh, and, those, and those traditions are passed down uh, through the words of our elders. And so every time you lose one, it's certainly a loss to the community. Were any of the, the folks who have passed away in the last year especially involved in in the tribal history and in, in yeah, that? I mean, you know, we lost um, in this past year we lost the vice chair of our elders council, which are you know the elders council is kind of the the, the keeper of that history and wisdom for us, and um, and then we also lost our tribal war chief as well. So two um, two incredibly important roles in our in our community that we lost in the last year. And how are efforts to vaccinate members of the tribal nation going? Well, it's it's going well. Um, I think we're slightly, from a community perspective, we're slightly behind the state average. Uh, and a lot of that is it's very similar to other minority uh, communities where there's, you know, we're, we're skeptical um, of, uh, of, of the vaccine. And, you know, there's skepticism of the vaccine um, and, and just in healthcare in general and, uh, and, and, and that's from generations of, of mistreatment uh, for minority communities where there's that inherent skepticism and, and feelings of mistrust. And so we still have that. And we're, you know, but I will say we spoke earlier about the wisdom of my of my elders. I will give them incredible credit because they stepped up first. And as 
you know, based on based on age, obviously they were the first eligible, but they stepped up in a big way in the elders community and said, look, we're going to be leaders in, uh, on this on this initiative and we're all going to get vaccinated. And so we had a high percentage of our elder population get vaccinated to kind of show the, the young ones that it's it's safe and that's what we all need to do to keep the community safe. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're speaking with Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler. So I imagine that uh, leaders from governments uh, around the world have, have uh, faced some difficult decisions that they really were not expecting <laughs> over the past year. Was was there a, kind of a, a moment that, that sticks out at you from the pandemic so far that where you, you sort of faced a really difficult decision that you know, you had not really been expecting that this had to make a tough <laughs> well, call on, well, <laughs> or had there been a lot of those? I, well, I got one big one for you that we never did in 29 years was that was shutting the doors of Foxwoods. Uh, you know, and, and and I say that one's big because it, it's not the, you know, the, running a casino and having Foxwoods isn't why we exist by no means. We've existed for thousands of years prior to being in the gaming industry. But it is a means to an end that supports our tribal community, has allowed us to repatriate and bring family back to Mashantucket and, and provide an, a robust economy that can provide education and healthcare, support cultural programs and the like. And so, you know, without that economic engine running, it cripples the entire tribal government. And we don't have the ability to tax like other municipalities have and states have. Um, it's our sole revenue source. And so um, that was a monumental decision and, um, and and difficult and but it was the right thing to do and I think once we once we did that you know, everything else seemed pretty easy at that point not not easy in in comparison it was easier uh, the decisions we had to make following that but that was the most difficult one because it really was a lifeblood for for our economy uh, and the services that we provide to our community what what sort of an effect has the 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 closure for, for several months and, and then sort of reduced operations at the casino. What, what sort of effect has that had on, on the finances for, for the tribe? Yeah, well, it's been difficult. I mean, again, it's the, it's the sole, not the sole source, but the primary source of, of, of income for our economy in, in many ways, right? That we have tribal members who are vendors, we have tribal members who are employed there, and then we get distributions to the government from it as well. And so, you know, it's, it's a whole ecosystem of revenue for the, for the, for the nation. And so that was impactful. And even today, after reopening, um, when we closed, we had maybe 100 employees out of our 5,000 that we were able to maintain um, to just keep the lights on and make sure things weren't falling apart. Um, and as we tried to figure out where we we're going to go early on in the pandemic, to reopening with about 1,600 employees. Um, and now we're up to just around 3,000 employees out of the 5,000 that we had. And so... Um, and, and many of those were, were trial members. We had a couple hundred trial members that were working at uh, Foxwoods or supporting Foxwoods, and they were all impacted by that. And so there's still lingering effects from that. Uh, we were fortunate to, uh, you know, be included in the in the federal government's uh, CARES Act, which provided some direct support for tribes around the country. Um, in the second, the American Relief Plan, there's another tranche that's dedicated towards tribal nations and and hopefully when that comes through, it'll, we'll be able to, to, again, increase the support or enhance the support uh, to, to the tribal citizens. But, yeah, I mean, losing that uh, for even a short period of time, well, it felt like an eternity, two and a half months, um, was very difficult in, in managing the relationship with our, with our lenders, with our community, 
um, and with our employees. It was it was difficult times, but everyone pulled together. And you know, I can say looking back that I'm incredibly proud of how my tribal council and my nation uh, and uh, and the executive team and all the supporting cast of employees managed through that process to get us to where we're at today. Can you say how much money you received from the, the federal government? Yeah, so we we, uh, we we were in the tens of millions um, in the first round, um, but you got to put it in perspective, Matt. When closing, uh, we were losing around five million a week, um, and so and those are bills that 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 stack up and don't get paid, and um, and you know, and principal and interest that you're not paying on your debt. It's uh, on your on, for those that are homeowners on your mortgage, and so. Um, yeah, it was a difficult time. And what are kind of the, the next steps for, for, I guess, it's kind of the, the ongoing sort of reopening of, of the casino? So, you know, I, we were fortunate. We've, um, it's a smaller footprint. Um, and, and initially, we only opened um, the Grand Pequot Casino and the Great Cedar Casino. Um, and we, would, we had no hotel rooms. And so we've been phasing in over time. So at this point, we're about 60 to 65 percent of the of the facility is actually open on peak times, meaning weekends. We still close uh, many sections on the weekdays, and so you know we have three hotel towers open out of the four, um, but not at full occupancy or full capacity. Um, the gaming floors are open uh, on weekends; are open 100 percent. I mean, excluding the the slot machines that are turned off. But as far as physical space. They're open. We haven't. Uh, we started to put our toe in the water on, on entertainment. We've had a couple of smaller shows, uh, and we've managed those successfully. We did announce a you know a, a larger event at the end of June that we're doing with Dave Chappelle, uh, where we're actually going to have everyone on site COVID tested via rapid testing um, as a as a as a model for shows moving forward, where we can increase the capacity so long as you have the cover that, that again you're still doing the. The, the, the distancing and the masking, uh, but you also have the second layer of insurance that um, the people have, have tested negative going in, at least on the rapid test. And we know that's not perfect, but it's still, it's another layer of protection. Um, the conference uh, convention business is still non-existent. Uh, and, and several of the restaurants are either mostly closed midweek, but are still closed uh, permanently for the time being. So, you know, we're, we're looking forward to the summer and, you know, and the COVID counts coming down even further and being able to do some more outdoor activities, uh, some of the outdoor festivals that we would have that would drive more people to the property, um, the zip line and, and those types of things. Um, the museum, we've actually set a date to, to reopen the museum and in, in later in May as well. And so we're, we're, we're getting there, Matt. We're, we're not quite where we want to be. Uh, but even by the peak of the summer, we don't see ourselves being more than 75% open, considering we're at about 60 to 65 now. When, when the pandemic is over, do you expect Foxwoods will, will be different? Yeah, I mean, look, we've learned a lot. Obviously, we've, we've learned how to, uh, to, to, to manage through a crisis in a way that we never uh, expected or experienced. And um, we've learned how to operate with, with, with less and be much more efficient and much more nimble, which allows us to, to look at opportunities in a different way. Um, you know, w w we continue to believe in the resort concept beyond gaming. And uh, we have a couple of initiatives uh, that are um, that are on the table, uh, hopefully that we'll be announcing in the, in the coming uh, months. 
that we'll continue to expand upon the non-gaming aspect. We recently uh, noted a partnership with the Mystic Market. It's a local uh, restaurant uh, slash food purveyor in the region down here in southeastern Connecticut that has six locations and they're opening up their seventh at Foxwoods. They'll have their main kitchen at Foxwoods. And so we're, lo we're looking at things like that where we can continue to grow upon the, the non-gaming aspect of the of the experience and, and make sure there's more opportunities for people to come and visit Southeastern Connecticut. Okay. We'll have more in a moment with Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler on a major expansion in gambling in Connecticut, currently under consideration by state lawmakers. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer. In this segment, Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler speaks with us. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. The General Assembly Public Safety Committee has approved bills that would allow sports betting and online casino gambling in Connecticut. The proposals have yet to go before the House or the Senate. The state would collect 18% of online casino gaming revenue at first with that amount going to 20% later. The state would also pocket a tax rate of a little less than 14% on sports betting. So, Chairman Butler, so, so sell me on this. Why is this proposal good for the state of Connecticut? <laughs> well, uh, hopefully I don't have to sell you, Matt. Uh, hopefully uh, everyone can appreciate the um, uh, two things. One, that this is the state of, of the economy in this COVID world that we're in. I mean, when you, we're Zooming right now, right? Everything has moved or is migrating to online, and so is gaming. And so uh, at minimum, we're building in insurances. By doing this, we're building in insurances so that when anything else happens, and God forbid it does, but if, if you know there's a COVID part two or whatever the next pandemic may be, you know we're not shutting down the state's economy entirely um, uh, because of it. And so that's you know that's the, certainly one thing that we've learned in this, in this. There's technology that's available today, and we should be use, utilizing it. And, and this isn't a new conversation. We've been talking. Uh, iGaming and, and sports betting for, you know, for years now. iGaming, ironically, longer than sports betting. We've been talking about that for about 10 years and sports betting for the last five. And so, you know, that that's one part of it. The other the other component is the um, the amount of revenue that's that's going to be generated for the state um, from this expansion. And when you look at it in comparison to other new revenue sources that the state may or may not be considering, there's nothing that compares. I mean, this all in this bill, um, once it gets to, once it matures uh, to a stable level, we'll be generating somewhere between 70 and $80 million incremental uh, tax revenue for the state of Connecticut a year uh, between all the, the components of the bill. And there's there's nothing like that. And other than raising taxes uh, on all of us citizens of the state, um, you know, or, or putting up tolls, there's really no other economic initiative that compares to what this what this means for the state and so in that sense i mean we should all be rooting for it um and and you know and, and as many of you know uh, many of the listeners certainly know that the, the pequot fund that was established back in 1992 uh, from the gaming revenue has distributed you know billions of dollars to municipalities throughout the state of connecticut since its inception and this just adds to that and why are the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation and the Mohegan Tribe the best entities to, to run online casino games? 
Well, it's it's the law. It's uh, you know, this is what we've debated for uh, for the last couple of years um, uh, on this issue, and and ultimately everyone has come to the same conclusion that legally. Uh, the two tribes have that right based on that agreement that's generated billions of dollars for the state going back to 1992 and uh, and 93 and then 96 for for the Mohegan and so i mean other than other than you have two of the the largest most experienced gaming companies on the planet here in south connecticut like residing in residing in southeastern connecticut now these are connecticut companies right if you look at it from a company from a from a business perspective and so the fact that you have two of the best in the industry here in uh, on our home turf, and we have the sole right to do it, um, you know, I'm surprised that the, the debate around it lasted that long. How does does that experience in, in running a casino translate to online games? Well, it's a casino. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when when someone would suggest or may suggest that Walmart, um, because they run retail locations shouldn't run an online uh, uh, version of the same business model. You know, Target, Walmart, Stop and Shop, I mean, you name it, every business has moved online and they focus on the core of what they do. So it's not like we're going online uh, to, to, you know, to get into retail, right? We're not competing with Walmart. This is what we've done for 29 years in gaming. And this is just an extension of that. And so that's, that's what makes us qualified because we've been doing it for, for 29 years. Um, not unlike any, every other industry that's gone online. And late last year, uh, you also announced an agreement with with DraftKings. Um, how how would would that agreement come into play if this this uh, gambling proposal is actually approved? Would would yeah. DraftKings be working with you, or what, what would DraftKings' role sort of be going forward if if gambling is expansion expanded as planned under this proposal? Yeah, so the the structure of that is is that there are there are vendor, right? I mean, we have today we have you know four thousand slot machines on the floor of, of Foxwoods, and we have you know, IGT and Aristocrat and and various other suppliers that provide that technology. And so, in this sense, they are they are our technology provider. Now, it's it's fortunate that they're also one of the one of the biggest brands in sports betting. Uh, and are getting there in iGaming, so they bring that experience to the table as well. But ultimately, you know, they're they're a, they're a vendor to Mash and Tucket, and you know, Mohegan has their own vendors that they're working with, um, and so they're coming into the market working with us and in, in our partnership uh, to bring that experience uh, to the citizens of Connecticut. So, would DraftKings essentially be running kind of the entire online betting operation for you? Well, the, yeah, we're, we're going to be using their platform, um, but we'll be working collaboratively on 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 how it's rolled out, on the marketing aspects of it, and but we we'll be using their technology because that's what um, that's what they're providing and what they've built up. We're speaking with Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchel. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. And at the General Assembly, uh, where, where this bill is still pending, uh, what's what's kind of going on at this point? Are, are you meeting with lawmakers or taking some steps to kind of try and push this proposal forward? Yeah. So currently the bill is um, it's being drafted in the governor's office. And my understanding is, um, you know, our attorneys have, have seen at least the first version of it uh, recently. And the, the plan is to run it. The governor is going to run it through the legislative process, I, I, hopefully. Uh, sooner rather than later, I think the the, the 
the approach is to make sure that not make sure but the approach is to separate it from uh, the budget process and have it as a standalone bill. And I think the legislative leadership agrees with that. And uh, it'd be great if we could try to get it through by the end of this month, I think would be the target. And so now if, if state lawmakers do approve this, and then presumably the governor would sign it, it the Bureau of Indian Affairs would also have to, to sign off on, on this arrangement, or at least on part of it, to allow it to go forward, is my understanding. Uh, I, now, when you and, and the, the Mohegan tribe were, were pursuing casino in East Windsor, approval of that got held up under the Trump administration at, at the BIA. Uh, w- would you expect things would go more smoothly uh, under the Biden administration? I, I think so. <laughs> I think I think a lot more smoothly. You know, here's what's interesting. We actually had a uh, uh, a call with the, the Department of Interior on this uh, in the last couple of weeks, and the same staffers that that worked on the the third casino in Connecticut were the, are the same, some of the same staffers working on this, um, and they up until you know this infamous meeting between. The Secretary of Interior and the President and and some of some lobbyists from some unnamed commercial gaming entity got together about 24 hours before they were going to uh, publish our 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 procedures. Um, there was no issue with it. In fact, we've modified our procedures in Mohegan's their compact uh, a couple of times over the last few decades. And so it wasn't until it was politicized that there was an issue. And so we, we certainly don't anticipate that uh, in this process, given the friendlier nature of this administration and the Department of Interior. I mean, let me tell you just a quick soundbite about this administration. Um, you know, the both the First Lady um, of the United States and the Vice President of the United States have, have visited Connecticut in the last month and a half. And on both instances, the White House reaches out to myself um, and to the Mohegans out of respect uh, for the sovereign to sovereign relationship uh, that this nation has with both of us um, and invites us to participate in both of those events. And so um, so I was there front and center uh, with uh, one of my Mohegan colleagues and presented the first lady with a gift of wampum, which is a token of respect uh, from our nation. Um, and then similar, uh, had the opportunity to meet with uh, Vice President um, Harris a few weeks back and do the same. And that, and that was, again, that's a reflection of how this administration views relationships with tribal nations. And it truly appreciates and respects that sovereign sovereign status. And, you know, they doubled down or tripled down on that when President Biden appointed the, the first Native American cabinet member and, uh, and Secretary Deb Holland. And speaking of, of relations between nations, there, there seemed to be a, a split between uh, the state's two casino-owning tribes when the Mohegan tribe reached an agreement with the state on the gambling proposal initially with the governor, but your tribe, the Mashantucket Pequot tribal nation, held out for a slightly different deal. So how are relations currently between the, the, the two tribal nations? We're, we're good. We're good, Matt. Look, um, that's the unique thing about um, about Indian country. There's 574 federally recognized tribes, and they're all independent sovereigns, and everyone has to do what's best for their nation. Uh, at that time, uh, that's what Mohegan felt was uh, was best for their nation. We, you know, agreed to disagree, um, and and we reconvened ultimately on a deal that made sense for both of us. And so, the, the beauty of of the deal in Connecticut is that what's good for one tribe is good for the other. And so we, we can't have separate deals. And I think at the time, 
everybody knew that when that was announced. Um, and so there was a little bit of hysteria going on that was that was unwarranted. Um, but we quickly refocused and and got the deal hammered out and literally a week and a half later to a point where everyone could agree to it. We've been speaking with Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler. Thank you very much for joining us. Mark Pazniokas, Capital Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, joins us next. Now, a few of our Connecticut Public Radio colleagues are going to ask for your support. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Napathancho. Coming up on tomorrow's show, what can we do to teach young girls confidence and resilience in tomorrow's world? Have you read the book, What Girls Need? How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women? Learn how parents and educators can help children develop grit, audacity, and self-confidence. We know many people tune into where we live on the car radios or stream us live at WNPR. But if you can't listen live mornings at 9 or at 8, you can subscribe to where we live on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app. Our guest in this segment is Mark Pazniokas, Capital Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Hello, Mark. How are you? I am fine. I'm also the father of two bold young women who I think we did a good job raising. <laughs> Yay! Excellent! Want to come back tomorrow? Here we go. <laughs> so I guess, do you have any thoughts on, on what you heard uh, just a little while ago from Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chairman Rodney Butler? Yes, I couldn't help but smile uh, listening to Chairman Butler referring to the groundless hysteria that uh, he, he observed in the media during that brief interlude uh, when the Mohegans had signed off on a deal with the governor and the Pequots had not, had not. because, you know, Rodney was the one who was really uh, reaching with his rhetoric. I mean, he invoked hundreds of years of really horrible history between uh, the government of Connecticut, as well as the two tribes. Um, but but then, you know, he pivoted and it's all good, as I as I thought he would. I mean, you know, th- it was all about getting to a deal. The Mashantucket Pequots are badly in need of a deal. And uh, so he act- actually acted as I expected he would. I mean, Rodney is one of the more interesting people in Connecticut politics. He is both a small town politician you know, the tribe has 600 voting members, but yet he's also effectively the, the chief executive officer of a multi-billion dollar uh, commercial enterprise. So he, he really occupies a very interesting place in business and in Connecticut politics. So you had, had covered a press conference in Norwich recently with the governor and leaders from, from both tribal nations. Did you have a sense as, as to whether everyone is kind of on the same page now, really? Yes, there was a, a wee bit of awkwardness. Uh, the governor and James uh, Gessner of the Mohegans were on one side of the podium uh, at the beginning, and uh, Rodney Butler and his tribal council were on the other side with uh, State Senator Kathy Austin, who was really um, a partisan on behalf of uh, the Mashantucket Pequot. She clearly feels more sympathies to them, although she does have both casinos in her district. Uh, but, you know, 
again, Rodney Butler at the end of it came over and gave the governor a big fist bump. And he, the two of them were, were getting along fine because the bottom line here is they have a deal. They have a way to go forward. Um, and this is something that uh, the state and the tribes have been trying to figure out for quite a while. Mm. So, of course, Chairman Butler is, is for this agreement. Are there any arguments at the state capitol against this proposed expansion of, of gambling in Connecticut? Well, the biggest thing that's going to cause problems as far as passage isn't the sports betting. The sports betting is kind of an incremental step. You know, there's a gray market that offers sports betting um, through these offshore websites. So this isn't as much of a cultural uh, change as the rest of it, uh, the online gambling, the idea that you can turn every smartphone and laptop in Connecticut into a slot machine, into a video poker game or a blackjack game. That's something I think that um, people are gonna have to get comfortable with at the General Assembly. There has not been a whole lot of attention on what does that mean culturally? What does that mean for problem gambling? The bill that they have constructed is really the bare bones structure that needs to go before the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And that's, you know, they want that bill to be as focused as possible. I, I believe there will, you will see perhaps uh, other legislation that will deal more directly with, okay, what should be required of the tribes and the Connecticut lottery when it comes to additional funding for problem gambling. You mentioned, I mean, gambling being available in, in the pocket of everyone who has a smartphone. I mean, how, just sort of in, in, some perspective here. How, how big would this expansion of gambling be in Connecticut? This would be the biggest expansion since the construction of the two casinos. It's really that big. And again, it's a cultural moment as well as, you know, what it means for state finances. Um, you know, New Jersey has some aspects of this, um, but this is going to push Connecticut more to the forefront. Uh, you know, Connecticut, it, there's a reason Connecticut is known as the land of steady habits. You know, this is a state that stuck with the blue laws for a long, long time. This is a state that, you know, only allowed uh, Sunday liquor sales in package stores uh, 10 years ago. And now we're going to have, again, um, gambling on your phones, in your homes, uh, as well as uh, online lottery sales. So the, the process of actually getting this approved is, a, I think, a little more complicated than it might be in some other states where maybe they just have to pass you know, a law. Here, this all had to sort of start with an agreement with the governor and the tribes. Can you sort of explain sort of why, why it had to start with that before it even got sure. to the General Assembly? It all goes back to the exclusivity deal that the tribes struck with the state of Connecticut uh, when Connecticut allowed them to offer slot machines. And uh, Governor Weicker struck uh, a deal that produced more than $8 billion for the state um, in, in exchange for giving them exclusive rights to casino games. The tribes agreed to what was really a fairly generous uh, tax structure that they paid 25% of the gross profits on slots. And um, that has made uh, doing anything regarding the expansion of gambling very complicated because if you uh, violated that exclusivity deal, um, you were gonna give up the slot revenue. And 
at the peak in 2007, that was worth $430 million a year. Now, that has uh, shrunk both from the Great Recession of 2008, but uh, more importantly, from the increased casino uh, competition that you see in New York, in Rhode Island, and Massachusetts. Um, the Connecticut Lottery now produces more money for the state than the two casinos do as far as direct revenue to the state, which is why uh, Governor Lamont um, was insistent that the Connecticut Lottery uh, also have rights to offer sports betting, that you know, the, the administration clearly sees the lottery as part of the gambling future. Um, now, one of the things that's interesting here is because the, the contributions from the slots has shrunk uh, from that uh, high point of 430 million, it's, it was down to 255 million um, before the pandemic. Um, so at some point, it may make sense to blow up that deal and and say okay do we want to open connecticut to commercial gambling and see if we can make more money that way but at the present time i don't know of anybody who seriously uh, argues that there is um a market reason to build another casino in connecticut you know we seem to be at the saturation point in southern New England, you know, hemmed in by New York, and then what you see in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Um, but that's the reason why it's been very complicated, really, to preserve uh, that exclusivity deal, to live within it, and which is why, again, everything in Connecticut has been endlessly complicated when it comes to gambling. Yeah, those, those compacts have been around for like three decades now. They seem like sort of a, a bedrock thing. And it seems like when, when you hear about that, it, about those ending, it's usually a threat, <laughs> you know, sometimes by the by the, the, the tribe saying, oh, if you, you know, violate our exclusivity, you know, that might blow up the compact. It, it, it would seem like a, it's almost almost hard to imagine that. Well, so but it's a threat both ways, because if the tribes blew up the compact, they would keep that money that they send to the state. But on the other hand, they would risk facing competition. And that's really been kind of the tension, you know, for, for the 30 years uh, that we've had that in place. And that's what kept MGM at bay when M MGM was making a pitch to do a, a casino in Bridgeport, you know, there was a lot of really suspicion that that was not, that that was a disingenuous offer, that really what they were doing was trying to keep the state from allowing the tribes to build a casino in East Windsor to compete with MGM Springfield. Um, so there was that game going on. And that was one of the factors that made cutting a deal very difficult because the governor was trying to find what he would refer to as a universal settlement. He wanted something that would make MGM happy, you know, would remove the threat of a lawsuit from them, would make the tribes happy. And ultimately that proved to be impossible. MGM is really not in the picture now as far as Connecticut. They have MGM Springfield. They have a uh, casino in Yonkers. So nobody, I think, really thinks that they are interested in doing a casino in Connecticut. You know, it would take away their own market. Okay. And anything else that it's important for folks to know about or anything? Any final thoughts? Um, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how much attention ultimately is paid on how the state should 
guard itself against problem gambling. Um, that has gotten short shrift so far. Um, but I think, you know, you will see more attention paid to that um, when they bring out a bill either at the end of April or, or probably early May. Anytime they give you a, a time frame, add a couple of weeks, and that's usually a smart, smart play when it comes to the Connecticut General Assembly. Okay. Thank you very much, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. My colleagues will tell you how you can support our show and our entire operation here at Connecticut Public Radio in a moment. I'm Matt Dwyer, filling in for Lucy Nalpathanchil. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.